This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Uh-oh. Hi, I'm Evan. Oh, there you are. <laughs> and we're going to talk about Taipei, a peep at Polynesian life. First novel, it says book on the Wikipedia entry, uh, by Herman Melville, first published in 1846. Um, and it's got a longer subtitle besides a peep at Polynesian life. Uh, a peep at Polynesian life during a four-months residence in the a valley of the Marquesas with notices of the French occupation of Tahiti, the provisional cessation of the Sandwich Islands to Lord Paulette. This is um, what they call spoilers, Paul. <laughs> that, yes, that, that, that spoilers. definitely is spoiler. <laughs> In which the uh, protagonist is eaten. <laughs> hey, now. That's, uh, fake, that's fake news. So, <laughs> um, that in itself is nonfiction. I I wonder how many of the readers realized that you know. How much of it is nonfiction? A good chunk of it. I I mean I'm, I'm okay. So I'm going to throw out my theory here, right 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 up the bat. Right, well, right in the it as nonfiction. Yeah, my theory is that Melville really wanted to talk about the nonfictional aspects about 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 the the, the French. Uh, French and Polynesia and the and the appendix. It's it's legal as appendix, but the, the whole bit with the British and the Sandwich Islands. I think that was Melville's entire thrust was to basically talk about how horrible, how horrible uh, Western society was treating the islanders, and he just he so he he wrapped a fictionalized version of his own time among the cannibals. But his real thrust was to say like, hey, look what we're doing here in Hawaii, Polynesia. This is not right. It's not what he says in the introduction. Yeah, I can, I can discuss that a little bit. That this was was his most famous, most popular during his lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. And his second book is also very non-fictional. It's based on it's drawn from life. Like this one is drawn from life. He really he spent less time there. That was the main difference, right? Names change, I'm sure, but. Omu is also drawn from life based on his experiences in the society islands. And then he writes this imaginative tale, Marty, which kind of continues. It's, in fact, the three are almost like uh, the same character kind of runs through them in a way. And then no one liked that book. It got trashed and it didn't sell. So he went back to the non-fictional stuff with Redburn and White Jacket. And those were a little bit more popular. And then he tried again the really imaginative stuff with Moby Dick. And again, no one liked it. <laughs> at the time yeah um in the introduction I, I i can't remember if it's in the actual audiobook or not um he talks about how um uh the reason he wrote this book is because it w- proved to be entertaining on board ship he said stuff like um this is a very popular book <laughs> oh this is a very popular topic on board ship and creates a lot of sympathy among the other sailors for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think he doubts the process too much because it really feels like this book, hopefully we can get back soon so we can, so we can, really feels like he really felt that 
the Islanders were really being done wrong. And, and, and we, we get not only, not only do we have the appendix at the end with the sandwich Islands, we get all these discursions about, about real life events, about what the French are doing, which are unconnected to the actual narrative of the character being uh, climbing in and into this Valley. It just feels like he's, he's more enjoying that than the poor guy's actual experiences among a cannibal tribe. And, being being under sort of Damocles the whole while, wondering like what's going to happen, what's going to happen. Relax a bit, like oh crap, they really are going to get after me. I got to run. Did we get you back, Evan? Yeah, I'm back. Okay, good. Uh, so I was just saying that the introduction, and I'm not even sure where I read the introduction, um, was talking about, or maybe, maybe I heard it on your podcast. Uh, the introduction talked about how it was very po- it was a popular story he would tell um, uh, when he was aboard ship in subsequent uh, sales, I guess, um, of his time amongst the the cannibals. And that's why he thought it would make a good uh, novel or a good book anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, I didn't realize when I went looking for your podcast, your three podcasts on it, I couldn't find it. I I, I was scrolling and scrolling. It turns out it was your first three podcasts. How long ago did you record that? Oh, I guess two-year anniversary. So, yeah, two years ago. Yeah, and um, although your microphone hasn't hasn't, uh, been upgraded, I notice your style is a lot (laughs) less stiff. Like, when I go back and listen to my first podcast, I'm like, oh, God, he sounds so nervous. (laughs) (laughs) You just sort of get smooth and, you know, practice that what you're doing after, uh, yeah, we got at least two. Well, I used to write scripts, yeah, yeah, that was so time consuming. Yeah, and uh, and you also it's... did voices too, and I was like, that's not what that's not what he sounds like in my mind. <laughs> uh, but I do encourage people to uh, listen to your uh, your podcast, even if 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 they have to scroll back all the way, like I did to find uh, Taipei. Um, there's so many. Uh, there's got to be at least 200 episodes out now. Is that am I wrong? Well, there's 200 in the main. Yeah. Yeah, there's about 200 in the main. Podcast, which is pretty impressive for only two years, because we're at 500 here, and that's 10 years, I think. Um, that doesn't even include the Philip Dick stuff. That no, no, that's a separate group. Very impressive. So yeah, um, I've been overproducing, maybe. Uh, I, our quality here is better, and I, I want to talk about um, lots of stuff going on in this book. Um, I I want to actually start with the most Lovecraftian element. <laughs> Of it, because <laughs> uh, I mean it's not very Lovecrafty, but Lovecraft does talk about a little bit of this. Uh, you know, the South Seas is sort of a place of uh, where the Deep Ones made a deal and sort of brought brought that Massachusetts uh, hor- horror from the South Seas and Dagon and all that stuff. I mean, there is a connection yeah. there, right? And I was just thinking in in watching biographies of of Melville and. Uh, listening to the podcasts about him, uh, he he's not actually all that different in uh, sort of life setup to Lovecraft. Um, Lovecraft is sort of homebound, right? Uh, but his his family was similarly wealthy, um, and then went into decline. Um, <clears throat> it's it's kind of like Poe too, right? You know, Poe's Poe's uh, mother and father were both actors, and they both died when he was a baby. Basically, and then um, and then he gets adopted by a rich family that uh, the father 
sort of disowns him and disinherits him, even though, you know, that's where his middle name comes from. Uh, Alan is, is from his adopted father. So there's a, there's a sort of a genetic, I mean, other than all being Americans, right? There's a genetic sort of West coast or East coast, uh, elite white guy who thinks about going to sea or actually does go to sea, uh, or reacts to a history of whaling, which, you know, Providence is where the whaling industry is from. So there is a genetic connection, uh, Literarily, anyways. Um, and I found in chapter uh, 21 is oh, where yes. it gets very uh, Lovecrafty almost, right? So I'm going to read. Can I read it? Can I read it? Can uh, I read it? Okay. I, I was thinking of starting along uh, where it says one day in returning. Do you see it there? Yes. Okay, go for it. All right. One day in returning from this spring by a circuitous path, I came upon a scene which reminded me of Stonehenge and the architectural labors of the Druids. At the base of one of the mountains and surrounded on all sides by dense groves, a series of vast terraces of stone rises step by step for a considerable distance up the hillside. These terraces cannot be less than 100 yards in length and 20 in width. Their magnitude, however, is less striking than the immense size of the blocks composing them. Some of the stat stones of an oblong shape are from 10 to 15 feet in length and five or six feet thick. The sides are quite smooth, but although square in a pretty regular formation, they bear no mark of the chisel. They are laid together without cement, and here and there show gaps between. The topmost terrace and the lower one are somewhat peculiar in their construction. They are both a quadrilateral depression in the center, leaving the rest of the terrace elevated several feet above it. In the intervals of the stones, immense trees have taken root, and the broad boughs stretching far over, and interlacing together, support a canopy almost impenetrable to the sun. Overgrowing the greater part of them and climbing from one to another is a wilderness of vines in whose sinewy embrace many of the stones lie half-hidden, while in some places a thick growth of bushes entirely covers them. There is a wild pathway which obliquely crosses two of these terraces, and so profound is the shade, so dense the vegetation, that a stranger to the place might pass along without being aware of their existence. Hmm. And um, he goes on to say in a couple of lines down there, um, how he doesn't believe that the natives did these. So um, mm-hmm. I'm going to just read that section here. Cory Cory's prompt ex- explanation and his attributing of the work to a divine origin at once convinced me that neither he nor the rest of his countrymen knew anything about them. Uh, so he, he, he's, he just dismisses the fact that gods did this, right? Um, As I gazed upon this monument, doubtless the work of an extinct and forgotten race, Thus buried in the green nook of an island at the ends of the earth, the existence of which was yesterday unknown, a stronger feeling of awe came over me than if I had stood musing at the mighty base of the Pyramid of Cheops. There are no inscriptions, no sculpture, no clue by which to conjecture its history, nothing but the dumb stones. How many generations of majestic trees which overshadow them have grown and flourished and decayed since they were erected? It's not a question, it's an exclamation, right? Um, and then he says, uh, uh, near, near the bottom of this chapter, I've already mentioned that the dwellings of the islanders were almost invariably built upon massive stone foundations, which they called peepees. The dimensions of these, however, as well as those of the stones composing them are comparatively small, but there are other larger erections of a similar description composing the morais or burying grounds and festival places in nearly all of the valleys of the island. 
Some of these piles are so extensive and so great a degree of labor and skill must have been requisite in constructing them that I can scarcely believe they were built by the ancestors of the present inhabitants, if indeed they were. The race has sadly deteriorated in their knowledge of the mechanical arts, or mechanic arts, to say nothing of their habitual indolence. By what contrivance within the reach of so simple a people could such enormous masses have been moved or fixed in their places? And how could they, with their rude implements, have chiseled and hammered them into shape? All of these, uh, all of these larger peepees, like that of the hula hula ground in the Taipei Valley, bore incontestable marks of great age, and I am disposed to believe that their erection may be ascribed to the same race of men who were the builders of the still more ancient remains I have just described. Accordingly, Cory Cory's account, the, uh, according to Cory Cory's account, the peepee upon which this, which stands the hula hula ground was built a great many moons ago under the direction of Monu a great chief and warrior, and that, as it would appear, master mason among the Taipees. It was erected for the express purpose of which it has, pre- it is at present devoted in an incredibly short period of one sun and was dedicated to the immortal wooden idols by a grand festival which lasted ten days and nights. Among the smaller peepees of, of, upon which stand the dwelling houses of the natives, I have never observed any which intimated a recent erection. They are, in every part of the valley, a great many of these massive stone foundations which have no houses upon them. This is vastly convenient for whenever an enterprising islander chooses to emigrate a few hundred yards from the place where he was born. All he has to do in order to establish himself in some new locality is to select of the many unappropriated peepees and without further ceremony pitches his bamboo tent upon it. So this is uh, really interesting. I was wondering, like, is this true? Is there are these uh, are there rocks like or stone foundations like this all over uh, the Marquesas? And I I didn't, I, I didn't look it up, but I'm very interested in this. And 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 I keep thinking about the theme that Evan, you're always you, you're you're you focused on, and I sort of blanked on as usual, um, which is labor. This is a book about labor. Yeah. So what what do you guys make of this? Well, I think all his work is about labor to some degree, except maybe Pierre mm. and Confidence Man. I think it just runs through everything. Yeah. I, I, I even threw up a little little uh, YouTube video about a year ago, I guess. It's just seven minutes or so. And Herman Melville wants you to quit your job. Right, right. And, and, and well, desertion runs throughout story, right? all his marriage. His most, well, Bernard believed the Scrivener. Yeah, it, it's all about not wanting to work or labor, <laughs> or not wanting yeah. to labor under the certain certain conditions. What, whatever it's about, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a very mysterious and strange story. And and likewise here, um, like I was thinking, what is this? What is this? If this is real, then who did make those? Because the Marquesas are apparently relatively late colonized of the world, right? One of the last places to be colonized um, by humans. Um, and if it's if it's uh, a metaphor, then I was thinking, oh, this is more like, um, it's almost like what you see in the time machine by H.G. Wells when you visit the distant future uh, and you've got the Eloy and the Morlocks and, and there's a uh, symbol there that's the... Um, uh, it's the white sphinx, 
right? Which is a, a symbol for us. The Sphinx is a symbol for us of an ancient, ancient civilization. We don't understand it. And it sits there and it baffles us. That's what, you know, the Sphinx is all about is it's about our not understanding. And then, of course, you go into the distant human future where evolution has taken over or has uh, radically changed humanity uh, into two different subspecies or something. Um, and again, there's a symbol for d- that deep time here. Um, so I don't know. I don't know what it means uh, in here. But well, we got kind of a post-scarcity situation yes, on, on this on the mark in in this society, anyways. That we I guess we never see the harpar. Maybe they're different. Certainly, but that's not the case with the colonized the places that have been heavily colonized. That's why he goes into that whole epilogue mm-hmm. about Hawaii and the places mm-hmm. that already been ravaged by colonialism. Mm-hmm. That that paradise is over. But it's post-scarcity, so if, you know, they just take the breadfruit of the trees, right? Mm-hmm. There's one character who works, I notice. It's yep. like, I think it's, it's Corey Corey's mom. Mm-hmm. Is, yeah, she, she's the hardest works. worker. But she's not, she's not doing it out of a sense of, like, resentment, you know, like, I have to do all this work because none of you will. She's happy. She loves her work, it seems. So maybe they're they're just profiting from former generation previous generations. Like if we get to automation and like universal basic income someday, right? We may all become lazy and and, and forget how things of, are made. Like how do they make those buildings? I, I you know, notice a lot of young we make people these days like tattoos. So maybe maybe that's what we'll end up in post scarcity. You <laughs> end up with a lot of tattoos. Um, probably <laughs> I mean uh, but I do I, want to I, say here there's a bit of a colonial gaze with this and you yeah. see it in other sources too this like because they're not working like Europeans they're not working like the sailors they you know I suspect you know there is work going on not it's not as idle as Melville paints it but it's just not the work they're used to it's the same with gender relations right the gender was so different and it kind of baffles them and weirds them out a little bit. Yeah. So I, it's it's just such a foreign kind of society that it it's just they don't really see what's going on in front of them. Aliens. I, I mean, I mean, Je- Jesse, you live in the Pacific yeah. Northwest, so you're familiar with another area which was so rich in natural resources that a lot of there was a lot of free time because the, the salmon and the the local resources was so abundant that. There wasn't a lot of work needed. Yeah, uh, by, by by those by the societies, at least compared to other things. I mean, they're not they're not working like idiots for half a loaf of bread because just everything is relatively plentiful. Yeah, there there is there is something. Uh, I was thinking a lot about the, the local people here, and there's actually a story that's kind of interesting. Like I'm trying to understand what what is actually going on. If, how, if, if we knew how much of this story was true, like what lines were literally true and what lines were not. I mean, we know he was only there for four weeks himself. And this is set over about four months, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he's he's changing some of the story, at least, uh, enhancing it with his own reading. And we know that he read, obviously, a lot about what else is going on in the Pacific. But um, if we knew exactly what percentage of it was real we could sort of maybe say why things actually happened the way they did maybe a little better but i was thinking why why do they want to keep tomo why why do they want to keep him and his theory is that they want to eat him and if you go with that theory 
um, I think you're going to have some problems because the evidence for them eating uh, locals uh, is maybe stronger than it is for eating, um, you know, like endo <laughs> eating versus exo eating, eating their enemies versus eating their family, right? The, the thing is, is cannibalism is real and it was happening in the Pacific. A lot of it was by sailors who <laughs> were eating the, each other because they ran out of food. And actually, I really like to think about the parallels between the beginning of the story and the situation he's in um, and the end of the story in the situation he's in or the middle of the story. So in the, at the beginning of the story, and I, I read it with a student after I read it uh, myself because it's so funny. I love the way Melville writes. He's such a, especially when he opens a book. I, I've only read two of his books so far, but oh, he's he's just a delight to read. And, and reading with my student, he thought it was really enjoyable too. This is, you know, a modern teenager, so you wouldn't think um, it would be that enjoyable, but it really is. It's it's a delight to read, and he um, he's uh, Tomo is upset at the lack of food right on the ship, and he talks about all the things that have gone, and the only thing left is poor Pedro, the one rooster. I don't know they <laughs> left the rooster, yep. other than they're the least good to eat. You know, the rooster meat is not as good as the hen meat. Um, so <laughs> poor Pedro um, ends up in a coffin under the captain's vest <laughs> in his belly, which is hilarious. Um, and then finally, the captain decides to turn to land, right? And and when the captain pulls in shore, he as they're pulling in, and the pilot comes out and takes their ship into the harbor, he's, he we we get the the scene of all the uh, French ships which are not exactly enemies of, of the Americans, right? But they're not um, there for the Americans. They're not the friends of the Americans. And they're certainly not the friends of the Marquesans. So we've got the, these tribes. There's the American tribe, right, who are coming into shore. Um, and they're kind of taboo. You're not supposed to, you know, you don't attack them, even though there's a warships there. So they can come in. And then... Um, the captain says, now, I don't want you going ashore. But if you really need to go ashore, don't do this and don't do that. And and then Tomo and his buddy Toby make this plan, which is, let's escape. Let's get out of here. And what what are they fleeing? Well, they're fleeing their servitude. They're fleeing their tribe. And would the captain want him them to do that? No. In fact, they're deserters, and uh, uh, some sort of punishment would be uh, inflicted upon them, although probably not being eaten. They might be executed, depending on you know, the circumstances. They certainly would be punished in some way. And I was like, okay, now we've got that same situation. So the uh, Taipei um, take these two sailors in, and they're part of the group, and then they don't want them to flee. Why? It's not like they need their labor, right? Like the captain does. But they're not fleeing the, from a lack of food either, because there's lots of lots of food to eat, including pig and uh, breadfruit and coconut and lots of beautiful ladies. So why, why do they want to flee so bad? Well, Jesse, there's a long history of like indigenous people in the Americas taking in people like runaway slaves exactly. was 
a big group that came in. But do you, because this is around your area, do you know the story of, of John Jewett? Yeah. Nutka? Yeah. And then, heard of him. I he was, was uh, of exactly I actually that. wrote about him mm-hmm. in my in my book on the Pacific uh, on labor. But he was captured by this chief in Nootka Sound, Makina. Mm-hmm. And Makina was really trying to get him to be part of the tribe. In fact, giving him like princesses yep. and, and well, giving him women. He when he came back, he said he was married to a Nootka princess or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was inflated. Yeah. But you know, they were doing everything they could. And I remember in his narrative, he was obsessed with, or Makina, the, the chief, the king, was obsessed with him taking off his, like, American clothes mm-hmm. and putting on, like, the, the Nootka clothes to kind of be a symbol of converting to, to, the, to, the side, to his side. Mm. And um, another example of this might be, like, the morning wars that the Iroquois fought. So... Um, of course, that 18th century, 17th, 18th century were really traumatic for the Iroquois, right? Especially deaths due to disease, right? Mm-hmm. Like 90% of the population dies within a century or so. And the Iroquois engage in these wars. And one of, I just got a little article online about this. And they talk about this. So, quote, finally and most importantly, the fundamental purpose of the mourning wars was to abduct members of the enemy tribe as compensation. Occasionally, the matriarch of the clan demanded that these captives be killed in vengeance. This was relatively rare, however. More frequently, the captives were actually adopted by grieving family members. It was the literal replacement of the lost loved ones. Mm -hmm. So essentially what would happen with these people would be captured by the Iroquois. They'd be brought back, and the Iroquois would tell them, you are now Uncle Joe, Mm -hmm. who died or whatever. And you have to be married to Aunt Sue, and you're the father. You literally just replace that person. Mm -hmm. In every way, I, you know that's not what was going on here. But the well, same kind I'm of not focus. Sure. I'm on... not sure that. Uh, I mean, we don't. Know, we don't because we don't know what percentage is real and what percentage isn't. Right? Uh, how much is his fiction and how much is you know his true experience? We don't know exactly, but it feels like it's the same phenomenon. It's almost like, you know, think of all the attention he gets. Right? When when uh, he shows up, he's a celebrity. And uh, the, the time we really see this in relief is when, uh, what's the taboo guy name comes in, um, who speaks English to him? I've forgotten his name. Um, anyways, when he shows up, I've got uh, I've got a character list in the back of my paper book here. Um, when he shows up, he he uh, he gets all the attention, and uh, Tomo feels like. Um, uh, oh, this is not fair. <laughs> Even though, you know, he he's been this sort of star, and all the ladies come and bathe his body, and yeah. all the men come and want to uh, do dances for him, and you know, he's the he's just like um, he's like a local celebrity. And the thing is, is in a post scarcity environment, right, where you've got your material needs pretty much taken care of you what is valuable is kind of novelty and celebrity and um, social capital. Yeah. But just like, you know, it's, it's, it, I think it's really cool that I know Wayne June, you know, I can, I can say, Hey, you know, the guy narrates darkest dungeon. I know him. I can I say podcasted that. with them. That's yeah. Right. I can talk. I can tell my students. I, I, I know that guy. Right. And it's like, well, that's interesting because, if if uh, he wants to flee my tribe, then I'm no no stay stay you know 
Um, that might be what's going on here, is that it, it, all his fears of being cooked are false, or at least it, he'd be cooked after he died in a terrible accident, right? Not after they killed him because they're fattening him up for his, you know, for their big feast. Because the people, they seem just like, just like in, um, uh, I guess, Moby Dick, which is a sl- slightly more fictional, um... Who's who's our uh, native tribesman in that? My brain is blanking. Queequeg. Queequeg. Well, Queequeg's a Pacific Islander. You got Tashtigo too. He's the Indian. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, but Queequeg. He's a native he, He's covered in tattoos in the same way. He's he's got the shrunken yeah, heads. Um, he's out selling his heads, right? So he's this yeah. oh, this horrible monster until we actually meet him when he becomes a sweetheart, right? Um. And yes, he's he's powerful, powerfully built, but he they're essentially married and it's a wonderful marriage. And uh I just I, I think it's like that um you know, all the the Kuri Kuri character, right? He basically thinks that Tomo's the greatest. Right? And that's just a delight. And uh, Feiwei, I like who is Feiwei uh, Kuri Kuri's little sister or is it his wife? Right? It's not clear. <laughs> And I, I like. I think he was being offered. Base. Uh, there's another scene uh, where he, they want him to get some tattoos, right? And he's oh they yeah, give him he, face he, tattoos, and and he's like, no, no, you can do my arms. But they're like, come on, do your face. It'll be great. <laughs> and yeah, that, that's putting he's him really, in the he's tribe. He's really against that, right? That's in the tribe, right? That's him becoming. One of them. They wouldn't eat him if he's covered in their tattoos. They wouldn't eat him at all. I don't think there's any danger, actually, of him. Well, I, 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 I found that part interesting because here he has, he's escaped from the ship. He's living among this tribe. I mean, what, I mean, his actual long-term plan is not exactly clear. So, but it's clear when, when they say they tattoo him, he's like, he revolts because he, because he feels like then he could never go back to, his society, but how? What was his plan to do so in the first place? If he's a deserter, so there's a little push and pull. Like, mm-hmm. okay, I'm, I'm here, I'm here in this post scarcity cannibalistic society, but I can't fully acclimate, so I'm not going to get these. I'm going to, I'm going to resist everything to get these. And it's hilarious. It's one of the parts of his book that the two keeps chasing him around, wanting to, why? Because he sees a blank canvas that he could really do a masterwork on and our poor narrator just does not want anything to do with this because he feels like he would it would keep him out of normal society forever which is kind of uh kind of wrong but i mean it would mark him as what he's done but i mean it, it, he should realize yeah if they're going to tattoo him they're not going to eat him uh, at least no, uh, uh, there there's a there's a, a really hilarious scene also i think it's curry curry um because he doesn't speak their language, right? Um, he They use words, and then they use sort of pantomime to tell the rest of the story. And he says, you don't want to go to the Valley of the Hapars. They'll eat you, right? <laughs> and then, then he literally grabs the flesh of his arm and then puts his teeth on it to, to indicate that that's what they're <laughs> going to do to you in that valley over there, right? <laughs> and um, mm. this idea that they're cannibals... Um, they eat their own, right? They don't. They can't be trusted. Um, what I th- uh, what I think is so great is is that because it doesn't literally happen 
in any it, there is one scene where he he theorizes that that's what's going on in the uh you know there there is a coffin basically and the, there's bones in there that have been eaten and then that was maybe that was uh Toby right but mm-hmm. it turns out that that's not the case Toby is alive right at the end of the novel um i don't know if Toby to, uh, apparently he did uh Melville did flee uh with another guy right so uh, presumably there's a an equivalent of Toby and he didn't get eaten right um but seeing seeing those those bones and the eating having been eaten and then that's taboo it's it's possible that they're endo uh cannibals right that they eat their their relatives when they die as a way of preserving the um the spirit and the and the flesh i mean this is paul you're a catholic uh when was yes. the last time you took uh the cracker and the wine christmas there you go um uh, should i fear you <laughs> i um, guess i'm not divine right so i'll be i'll be all right well well if, if transubstantiation is a is a thing and is a real miracle then yes i've eaten the body and blood of our lord jesus christ which makes me a cannibal right but uh, if your religion is not so fixed in its um in its uh you know you got you can devoutness, yes, it's just a cracker. Uh, no, no, I was thinking like if your religion is not so um, uh, concretized, so that you've got this whole um, dogma that is sort of perpetuated from island to island, from continent to continent, but rather you just have a, an innate sense of the value of humans as as wonderful creatures under the sun. Um, mm-hmm endo cannibalism as a way of preserving your your relationship to your loved ones is actually a beautiful thing i mean it's dangerous uh, for reasons of uh you know disease spreading and stuff like that but uh, right. yeah, it's yeah, a beautiful yeah. thing it's not a uh, i'm gonna eat you because i'm so hungry which is what literally was happening amongst sailors and would have happened yeah. had the captain uh you know Kept out of kept state. on his on his journey, right? The the raft of the Medusa story, um, where the ship, uh, uh, what 150 sailors um, build a raft, and at the end, 15 of them are alive when they're found. What happened to the other guys? They didn't all starve to death. Right? Um, no. And in fact, H.G. Wells's um, The Island of Doctor Moreau starts with a a bullshit story about how. Um, uh, one of the guys tried to practice cannibalism on the other, um, and then the other guy, uh, they rebelled against that, and uh, they say he sunk like a stone. But then we were luckily saved. But actually what happened, if you read between the lines, is uh, the narrator ate uh, one of the other uh, survivors of the shipwreck, right? And the, the, that's the real story. Is the people going around the Pacific are talking about how there's cannibals all over these islands. Yeah, they're the sailors who've yeah. eaten their fellow sailors when things got desperate. Rather than well, I want to go, I want to go back to endocannibalism for a moment. Mm-hmm. And since I'm currently reading a uh, a book on the work of Robert Heinlein, the the book that comes to mind is Stranger in a Strange Lands, right? Where where the where the Martians are will eat uh, eat people of their of their their own water brothers when they have died, mm-hmm. not 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 
as a, as a sacrament. Mm-hmm. And I use that word very, very specifically. And what happens at the industry, industry land, they, uh, uh, Jub- Jubal and, uh, and, and, and the other, uh, members of Mike's family after Mike has been killed, they, they have Mike broth as a, as a sacrament to the memory of right, Mike. Right. Um, in fact, you can tell Heinlein was, um, highly influenced by his journeys in the Pacific. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had not quite Pacific. realized how much he had gone around the Pacific, but they, they, but it's talked about in the in the book about how uh, about his uh, journey around the world and and the stuff he had seen and the stuff he had didn't like. So, I mean, I had kind of knew because especially like books like Job, which starts up with a cruise to the South Pacific and things going wrong. But yeah, he he really spent he, he spent a significant amount of time on that round the world journey, and he definitely had been influenced by what he saw. Um, but he's also uh, influenced by like that in what his most famous, I think he's probably his best novel, maybe not his most famous, um, which is Moon is Harsh Mistress. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to read the section. This is from chapter 26. Um, the peculiar system each in the audiobook it doesn't have the, uh, the spoiler uh, laden <laughs> or just handily. Uh, tell you what part of the book it's in um subtitles which uh for chapter 26 is king mahevi allusion to his hawaiian majesty conduct of marheo and mahevi in certain delicate matters peculiar system of marriage number of population uniformity embalming places of uh, sepulture funeral of something's and the number of inhabitants of Taipei, locations of the dwellings, happiness enjoyed in the valley. A warning, some ideas with regard to the present state of the Hawaiians, story of a missionary's wife, fashionable equipages at Oahu, and reflections. So in this section, he talks about the marriage of uh, marriage system on uh, Nukahiva. Um, where else indeed could such a practice exist for even a single day? Imagine a revolution brought about in a Turkish seraglio. Sh- and the harem rendered the abode of bearded men, uh, or conceived some beautiful women in our own country, running distracted at the sight of her numerous lovers, murdering one another before their eyes, out of jealousy for the unequal distribution of her favors. Heaven defend us from such a state of things. We are scarcely amiable and forbearing enough to submit to it. I will not be able to learn what particular, particular ceremony was observed in the forming of the marriage contract, but I'm inclined to think that it must have been a very simple nature. Perhaps the mere popping the question, as it's termed for thus, might have been followed by an immediate nuptial alliance. At any rate, I have more than one reason to believe that tedious courtships are unknown in the Valley of the Taipei. The males considerably outnumber the females. This is curious. I, I, I was wondering if this is like childbirth death or what. Um, but this holds true of many of the islands of Polynesia. Although the reverse of what is the case in most civilized countries. The girls are at first wooed and won at a very tender age by some stripling in the household in which they reside. That's interesting. This, however, is a Uh mere frolic of the affections, and no formal engagement is contracted. By the time this first love has has a little subsided, a second suitor presents himself of graver years and carries both boy and girl away to his own habitation. This disinterested and generous-hearted fellow now weds the young couple, marrying damsel and lover at the same time. And all three henceforth live together as harmonious as so many turtles. I have I've heard 
of some men whose civilized countries rashly marriage large families with their wives, but have no idea uh, that there were any place where people married supplementary husbands with them. So this is actually literally what is happening in Munasahar's mistress, right? Infidelity on either side is very rare. No man has more than one wife, and no wife of mature years has less than two husbands. Sometimes she has three, but such instances are not frequent. The marriage tie, whatever it may be, does not appear to be indissoluble, for separations occasionally happen. These, however, when they do take place, produce no unhappiness and are preceded by no bickerings for the simple reason that an ill-used wife or a henpecked husband is not obliged to file a bill of chancery to obtain a divorce. As nothing stands in the way of separation, the matrimonial yoke sits easily and lightly, and Taipei wives live on a very pleasant and sociable term with her husband. On the whole, wedlock, as known among the Taipees, seems to be of a more distinct and enduring nature than is usually the case with barbarous people. A baneful, promiscuous intercourse of the sexes is hereby avoided, and virtue without the clamorous invoked, uh, as it were, unconsciously practiced. And it goes on. But I want to point out how interesting this is in terms of, I was, when I was trying to get Marissa to participate with this, and she's not available because she didn't have time to read it. But um, this is the actual, the kind of roots of science fiction for a lot of, um, like, especially I was thinking like the 1970s. I think there's a Silverberg story um, where it's just casually mentioned that he, he's got a month wife, right? Where they, where they just start experimenting in science fiction in the future. What, 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 what gender relations will be like uh, when, um, when you get 50 or 60 or 70 or 100 or 1,000 years down the road from uh, women having birth control, right? And uh-huh. what, you, what you will often see is, yeah, some just sort of strange practices that we don't normally think of as normal. But when I was a kid, if your parents were divorced, that was a, that was a taboo, right? It was a shame upon your family. Now, uh, divorce is, is probably, I don't know if it's less common, but it's, it's just not an issue, right? It's just people, people separate, get divorced, whatever. <laughs> that happens. That's, that's bad. But in a post-scarcity environment like you've got on this island, if you don't like your husband, you don't like your wife, you just move over to one of those ancient stone things and put up your house. And apparently that's done. We've seen, we saw a house raising, um, here and it took, uh, you know, everybody in the community less than a time it, you know, less than a day to put it up. And they were all doing it very lazily and languidly, right? So all the problems of the world can be solved in this quote unquote garden of Eden, seemingly. But, but that's all fictional too, because there's a fucking war fleet out in the harbor that's about to radically change everything that's going on in this Garden of Eden. Really interesting. Yeah, I, what I, I thought long and hard about why he included that stuff about Hawaii mm. in in like that appendix, and and it just what really struck me, and I think what he's trying to say there is this kind of idyllic gender relations, as soon as the missionaries come, mm-hmm. it essentially be like, it, it immediately becomes like prostitution. Mm-hmm. Like the whole thing gets just becomes a, that's how, it, that's how it's described, like mm-hmm. the transition. And, 
and I think that's kind of a metaphor of how he sees all the the transition, right? This these things kind of get corrupted and twisted by both the missionary gaze and and how they interpret it, but then of course by the material reality of of colonialism and disease. I think this one also has the section about like the cows or the goats or something. Mm. Is that in there? No, I didn't see like the ecological change, right? The I think it's some animals are brought in. He talked to, about the, to the the mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah, and, that too. Um, and that, but, I mean, the thing is, is it's it's not literally Eden because there are flies, right, that are constantly landing on his skin, and the girls are waving them away with little fans. Um, so it, it's not it's not utter heaven, right? It probably gets hot. <laughs> it, it, it probably gets. I, I think it's important to 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 mention here though that. The Pacific, you know, in in these kinds of accounts, and this goes way even to the 17th, 18th century, I mean, has been kind of a foil for European sexuality and, and European anxieties about sexuality. Um, there's this really interesting document by Denis Diderot, and you can probably find it in translation. I found it in translation somewhere. It's it's a supplement to the voyage of, of Bougainville. Bougainville is like the French cook, mm-hmm. like the Pacific explorer for France. And... He wrote kind of a, a an essay about this, but it's all about sexuality. And I'll just read from Wikipedia here. Diderot's views on sexuality is contained in this book. Now, in the book, Diderot uses the dialogue between Oru, a Tahitian man, and a chaplain in order to contrast French and Tahitian societies. Tahitian people are governed by nature and portrayed as happy and content. They also have less restrictions on their sexual conduct because men and women are not obliged to marry before having a child together. People can have sex with the opposite gender in order to procreate, which is nature's intended purpose for humans. In Tahiti, women are not considered property of any man and are not ridiculed for having children before marriage. And that was written, I guess, in the 1780s or something. Mm. Um, and then you can you think, well, that's just those Enlightenment people, right? They were, you know, but uh, coming of age in Samoa is the same stuff. Mm-hmm. Have you guys read that one? I've I wrote a bit of it in college. Yeah. And that was really criticized by anthropologists. Um, where are I going to Mead, Margaret Mead, that's the author, right? Yeah. And she had that same idea of like this liberated sexuality. But it's hard not to look at these sources. And you could say there's a there's kind of a projecting of, of becoming a foil for European sexuality. And, and therefore, it gets distorted when you do that. But... One reason these marriages seem to work is because women don't have to marry. It's not a, a social necessity. And there's to not marry. a property transfer either, right? Yeah. Um, the thing is, yeah, so local local natives here, there was a lot of property involved, right? And a lot of the relations between groups was property. Um, so we do like the 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 system. One of the thing things of way of looking at this, I was thinking like, well, maybe there maybe when when Tomo's leg gets better, he's going to become a slave, right? Because that the yeah. slaving system, which is kind of like just a, a way of ex, exogamy, right? Getting new girls, new getting new wives, getting new uh, genetics into your local tribe. Um, you know, you, you become a slave for the new society, but it just means you live in somebody's household and maybe you have to do what they say for a few years and then, you know, people start respecting you and then you can do whatever you want. <laughs> it just there's no like formal uh uh disbandment of your your 
you never no manum- formal manumission. Yeah, you, you never manumitted formally because it wasn't slavery is sort of an uh, uh, is not the right term for it. But um, the thing is, is what would they want him to do, right? <laughs> like the the amount of labor needed is like the the one of the chief wants him to fix the guns, right? Well, he can't because he doesn't have the tools and also he doesn't have uh, the skills, right? He can he can do a little sewing with his needle, but he can make the pop guns for the right, kids. right. The, I, I was thinking like the fact that he he's basically uh, he's a novelty, right? He's an exciting item. He can he can uh, entertain people when you know it's raining and everybody's inside, but that's about it. That's not much of a real slavery system. I think what it really gets to is that the humans have great value just in themselves to other humans. They just want to be around other humans. And if you're a lonely person and there's somebody that, you know, you'd like to spend time with, you don't want to see them move away. You don't want to see them, you know, out of your, your sphere because you want them close to you. And that, that I think is what's really going on there. And he's seeing it as like, well, I got to get out of here. Got to get out of here. Um, and maybe that's just his roving feet, right? It seems that um, Melville himself was always looking for greener grasses everywhere, right? Yeah. So if you read Omu, mm-hmm. and so the character in Omu, his name is Taipei, so he's the same guy, right. essentially. He's taken uh-huh. on he's taken on the name of of, of his yeah. tribe. <laughs> Interesting. But the very last scene there, he's trying to go back. He he goes to the court of like a Polynesian princess and basically says like, I'll just be your dude that hangs out here. I'll be like your, I'll be in your court. So I, I you know, some of these Polynesian kings and chiefs just wanted white people hanging out. And there's a bunch of historical examples of this actual thing happening. Um, so you got this narrative of, of this resistance to, Tomu becoming one of them, right? Mm-hmm. But the the real f- what's ha- going to happen here is is of course colonialism. And in that same chapter we were looking at twenty six, here's what he writes. But what matters all this? Behold the glorious result: the abominations of paganism have given way to the pure rites of the Christian worship. The ignorant savage has been supplemented by the refined European. Look at Honolulu, the metropolis of the Sandwich Islands, a community of disinterested merchants. A devoted self-exiled heralds of the cross, located on the very spot what 20 years ago was defiled by the presence of adultery. What a subject for the eloquent Bible-meeting orator. Nor has such an opportunity for the display of missionary rhetoric been allowed to pass by unimproved. But when these philanthropists send us such glowing accounts of one half of their labors, why does their modesty restrain them from publishing the other half of the good they have wrought? Not until I visited Honolulu was I aware of the fact that the small remnant of the natives have been civilized into draught horses. Draft horses and evangelizing the beasts of burden. So the real ones who are enslaved are the people of the Pacific. It's Mm -hmm. it's not Tomu or these visitors who are at risk of being enslaved. Mm -hmm. It's literally what the Pacific became. Was yeah, he's not he's not super happy with the the, evangelizing evangelizing of the natives because he's he's saying that your money, all that money, you and your salons who are reading this book. Um, are giving to you know Christianize the Pacific. That money is going to. Uh, well, I'm sure there's. He says I'm sure there's some people out there doing some good, but mostly it's just it's just not doing any good, and it's in fact hurting people, right? Yeah, 
it, it, it's 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 profound. It's a profoundly pointing at at these practices and saying, "Look, we're doing wrong here." Mm-hmm. Which just goes back to my original thesis that that's what he really wants to talk about. It's not he's less interested in talking about about his experience and like pointing out what's about the uh, how. Oh, okay, we're, that's a bad word. I won't use it uh, about about the devastation of the Pacific by colonists and evangelists. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really a- interesting to talk about like w- what's about to happen too. So we've got this French fleet uh, in the harbor, right? Six, six. Um, I want to say men of war, but that's not the word for it. Warships, he calls them, right? Six French warships, and they're about to annex this island and claim it for you know the king of France, or, or no, not sorry, for the republic, right? <laughs> um, uh, this uh, country that's just had a revolution uh, to free all its people and make liberty, right? And now, what does this uh, this French Republic want? It wants to enslave another group of people and make an empire. And and it's like, oh yeah. And then uh, this this we've got an American here who's you know middle 1840s. They they're not really uh, making an empire, right? They're just doing American stuff. But you fast forward, uh, uh, you know, 50 years. Empire's definitely on the books now, right? We're all over the Philippines, and hey, that place, that terrible place the British are doing, the Hawaii thing, guess what? That's ours now. <laughs> right? You don't even have to go that far ahead. Uh, there's this wonderful book, it's, it's rather short, it's called The White Pacific, U.S. Imperialism and Black Slavery in the South Seas After the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And the thesis there, well, I'll just read it from a review. The end of slavery in the United States unshackled the industrial potential of this sizable nation that's helping to create the surplus and subsequent search for markets that so injurized, blah, blah, blah. And what happened, the thesis is basically these slavers, plantation owners, a lot of them just went to the Pacific mm-hmm. to carry on slavery. Yeah, blackbirding. And they used Chinese labor, they slavery. used indigenous people yeah. or whatever. It, so the U.S. empire in the Pacific, I, I mean, I even push it, would push it back to the 18th century to some degree. Wow. The sea out of fur trade. I mean, they were messing around in Hawaii in the, in the 1780s. Well, I think it's different to, you know, go, go on an island and Shanghai some people than it is to claim the island and then say now you are like that's what his whole thing that all that section about hawaii and and uh the uh, there's that one guy who who claims to have eaten uh cook's uh, big toe <laughs> didn't yeah. say whether it was the yeah. right or the left big toe um but captain cook's uh toe got cooked and got eaten by this guy and then they try and sue him and that's why he's famous yeah they try and sue him and they can't find evidence that he's wrong so <laughs> They have to free him, and now he goes around to, I guess, white people parties and <laughs> gives speeches in which he describes the flavor of Captain Coast, Captain Cook's toe. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I found Captain Captain Cook is a rather interesting figure. When I went to Australia and I went to uh, the the national park just south of Sydney, where where he landed, I had. I ran into a uh, a native uh, a native worker of the park who had really strong negative opinions about Captain Cook and and colonialism. Mm-hmm. It's like yeah, he, I was the only one there in the park this morning, and yeah, I got the full barrel of yeah, the, like because I used to because go up there like oh Captain oh look look at the maps look look back where Captain Cook went here and here and I thought wow cool it's like he went. All over Pacific, he was a great adventurer. He made all these maps and all this stuff, and he 
died in Hawaii. How, what a shame. And the the colonial legacy of Captain Cook and what he did didn't come till much later. And I didn't quite realize the, yeah, the, the whole basic story of him getting killed in Hawaii. He, he, he probably was doing something really nasty that got him killed in Hawaii. It wasn't an innocent killing by any means. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I sometimes fantasize about writing a, uh, uh, like a history of the early Pacific book ended. The book ends would be Magellan killed by the, the Filipinos and then Cook killed by Cook. the Hawaiians. <laughs> that, would be, that would be an interesting <laughs> two ends. That, that book. Yeah, that would that, 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 be good ways to, uh, to frame it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think you need to go a little farther than that because, uh, of course, being uh, mere minutes. But he's going early Pacific. He's going early Pacific. Mere minutes yeah. from Vancouver. I was thinking of how many times Vancouver is mentioned in here. Uh, he's. Um, uh, he's mentioned a few times. This is, I think, the most interesting one. At Kilo Kilo, Kilo oh, I can't even pronounce this. At Kilo Kiyoko, the scene of the tragedy, a strip of the uh, a, a strip of ship's copper nailed against an upright post in the ground, used to inform the traveler that beneath beneath reposed the re, quote unquote remains of the great circumnavigator, that is Cook. But I am strongly inclined to believe not only the corpse was refused Christian burial. But the heart which was brought to Vancouver sometime after the event, and which the Hawaiians stoutly maintained was that of Captain Cook, was no such thing, and that the whole affair was a piece of imposture, which sought to be palmed off upon the credulous Englishman. Um, and then he goes on to talk about Captain Cook's big toe. Um, it was almost like those medieval relics, right? Yes. That- you can say this is the bit of the true cross, that's or this right. is Saint. And I think that, that that's almost that uh, that's almost the effect of this book, right? Because he he's the guy who lived among the cannibals. Well, he didn't actually see anybody eating, right? He saw the heads. And there's a story um, which I, I uh, if you haven't read, and I think I might even encourage you to read, read it before, um, uh, by Jack London called the Red One, which is. An ancient oh, yeah, astronaut story and also native, native. Um, in fact, I think that's the story that kicked off the ancient astronauts idea, um, because it's mm-hmm. shortly thereafter that people start claiming that astronauts, have, you know, a- ancient aliens have visited the Earth and uh, done at X, Y, and Z. Um, but that that story is set in, I think, uh, it's uh, north of Australia. What are those islands? Anyways. Um, we're all uh, beginning back to your opening comments about these old like religious artifacts that no one remembers building that just seemed to always yeah, be there. Yeah. You know, these are oral cultures. These are oral cultures. So how do they, uh, you know, they, they're flexible stories, right? Yes. They change over time based on changing conditions and changing situations. And you're going to lose knowledge, I suppose, in doing that. Yeah. You're, well, you're going to use, you're going to lose the, um, the knowledge of what was known but you're not. But you're actually going to gain value, because people sort of, you know, that's what those um, the Grimm brothers are doing, right? Is what they did was they took stories that were always in flux, and then they concretized them or ossified them so that now they're stuck that way, right? Um, so you get this, uh, and when you look at uh, enough of them, um, are forgotten, I suppose. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, you know, we ha- we still we're still doing this, right? That's what those. Um, <laughs> Uh, what? What's those online stories called? The spooky 
copy and paste uh, creepy pasta, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what they're sort of doing is is taking old stories and rejiggering re them so that they have new, new more modern meaning. But uh, the Disney uh, versions of, of of the stories, you know, the yeah, fairy well, tales. Yeah, I mean, rounding off the corners, the sharp, taking away the sharp edges, and maybe making other things more sharp so that we can see them better. Uh, I think I just saw that they're going to make Tangled 2 or something like that. Or maybe it was Frozen 2. And I'm like, well... Yeah, so they're going to make Fro- Frozen... They're going to make Frozen 2, right. yes. So I, I don't but, know... But, uh, but, I don't know if there was I was thinking of Moana. That. Yeah. Oh, um, I was thinking of Moana. Sure, Moana is another example of that, right? Where th- that name is actually... They don't make here. Moana 2. That end, that end is great. <laughs> yeah. Um, that would be horrendous, a Moana 2. I, I just thought that movie was so perfect. Yeah, it, it 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 I it took me a while to actually get to it, but I was, I, I was, I was like, why did I wait so long? This is excellent. <laughs> I I didn't finish it. I don't know why. It seemed Jesse. It, it seemed all right. It seemed for kids, though. I think is what what the issue was. I don't know. I, it's for kids, but I mean, it, you know, if you if you if you're interested in the frontier, even it's got this kind of the science fiction element to it. Like you have to, we have to get to Mars, right? That's what I take away from Moana. Uh, well, Let's get off our butts. Uh, uh, Mars, one, of the, one of the things that's different between Moana and, and the story here, right, is how do the women get anywhere from island to island if they're not allowed to go on the canoes, right? That taboo seems very arbitrary. They swim. Yeah, they, yeah, they swim. No, I mean, like, when they're literally moving from island to island, not, yeah. like, you know, across the Pacific, when they're migrating. At, at one point, women were allowed to be in the canoes, right? They're allowed to, well, yeah. Uh, well, but it, it seems like there's probably like if this was not a, um, if this was, there's a, there's a number of science fiction stories that are, are really terrific. There's a Sheckley story called um, Perfect Victim, I think it's called, and it's <laughs> it's a kind of a retelling of a story like this where a guy lands on a planet and um, he he discovers that the 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 people there. Um, have these strange practices and he doesn't understand them, but he's trying to figure them out. And what it turns out to be is that everybody on the planet, um, uh, they all have a secret desire, which is to be basically killed. <laughs> and so they set up situations where they can like, like uh, secretly they're every time they pass over a bridge, they're cutting a little bit of the rope so that one day when they cross over, <laughs> They'll be, uh, they'll be, they'll fall to their death, and everybody will be really happy because he he got his perfect death, right? <laughs> and so this this is sort of a whole system of like uh, wanting to be killed and wanting to uh, have this perfect death um, infects all their society, but you don't you don't see it because it's taboo to talk about it and it's taboo to actively seek your own death. Right. And and so this kind of this kind of satire um, is uh, like probably directed not at the people of the Pacific, but at the reading audience of the 1950s. Who are read- I think it's actually in a, a Silverberg book called The Book of Wonder or um, uh, it's also called Science Fiction 101, that story. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Uh, I've read Science Fiction 101. Yeah, Science Fiction 101, and it was uh, Robert Silverberg's Worlds of Wonder. That's what it's called. And th- okay. and this story is it's just it has a sort of similar situation as what we've got in Taipei. Is the narrators from Earth 
he doesn't understand these these native peoples. They've got these beautiful native ladies, and they're very uh, solicitous and uh, kind in the native manner the same way. And uh, and yet they're all getting into these terrible accidents. And he's he's like, well, it'd be really wonderful if we could, you know, get some safety regulations. <laughs> turns yeah. out is no, no, no. They do not want safety regulations, right? So at some point in our in our fictional world that's created in this novel, it became taboo for women to go on canoes. And I, I'm not sure if that's because they didn't want women to get taken to other other communities or it's well, just like somebody stubbed their toe once and now they say oh no it's women and boats you know I, uh, who knows right well this this also ties into uh some of the stuff i saw when i was in new zealand I was looking at the museums about the patterns of polynesian migration and when when and where they migrate to very part and explored very parts of the pacific i mean they they the the ancestors of the Polynesians came from the mainland somewhere around 2500 BC. They came across what's now New Guinea and Indonesia. They hit Mel- they hit the Melanesian Islands about 1500 BC and then started spreading outwards from there. And then they stopped for a long while, it, which is kind of like the whole story of Moana. It's like, this is like, it was, it was like, 1500 years they decided nope we're not going to do anymore and then suddenly out of mostly out of Samoa they start started expanding again suddenly for no good reason and and that's when they found the Cook Islands they found Hawaii they found Easter Island and they found New Zealand but there was that giant pause where they decided it's like stay put on their own little islands for a while before they had that new second pulse of migration where where it became cool to actually start exploring again I, I got the title wrong. Uh, it's, I believe it's called The Monsters. Um, I, uh, yeah, Ascension. Uh, I think that's what it's called. And the uh, oh, maybe that maybe maybe I'm confusing it. Um, <laughs> the, the, there's an essay in Worlds of Wonder and Science Fiction 101, uh, written by Silverberg for each of the stories, and they're really terrific. Just saying what's what's going on in the story and why they're so good. Um, the essay for the monsters, that's only Sheckley's story in there, is called uh, uh, Don't Forget to Kill Your Wife. <laughs> and it's a, it's a story. Oh, um, yeah, where, again, the, you know, the women get upset if their wives don't. If, um, yeah, the, so now that's a different story by Sheckley, but he's doing the same thing. He's always doing the same thing. He's making a satire of sort of the conventions. Um, from what I recall of this story, don't forget to kill your wife. Uh, this is a line from the monsters. Um, humans land on this planet and uh, they have a similar setup where they're wandering around and trying to figure out what's going on. And um, <laughs> the, um, the the problem is, is oh, the females reproduce like 99.9% of the time um, and they reproduce incredibly quickly. So, you know, you go out for lunch, you come back and there's like 15 wives in your house. So you have to, you have to kill off most of them. Otherwise the house will be overrun and they want you to kill them too. Right? So but it's kind of a, just a crazy story, but this whole book actually, Robert Silverberg's Worlds of Wonder is just terrific. Um, I know I'm getting distracted, but uh, the essay, you guys will both like this because you're both PKD guys. For Colony, you know, guys know this story? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The essay, uh, 
from that one is called I Trusted the Rug Completely. (laughs) 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 Which is one of those fellow Quebec lines that just resonates. (laughs) I don't think I want it on my tombstone, but it would be a man. (laughs) (laughs) I trusted the rug completely. Um, I, I do see a connection between this book and science fiction. Uh, because th- these ships are, uh, you know, the equivalent of starships going to planets out in the vastness of space. The Pacific, oh, absolutely. The Pacific is that. It's vast emptiness. Is you know, it takes six months to get anywhere, and you know, when you get there, there's an alien culture that is as alien as anything we've ever seen, right? Other that that's sentient, anyways, right? Um, and and then the interactions between the two cultures, the first contact, can be incredibly dangerous, um, not just to Captain Cook and the you know the uh, you know the, the, there's another Phil, uh, Philip K. Dick's first story right um, published story, Beyond Lies the Wub is a first contact story or at least a close to first uh-huh. contact story where you know you take on an alien. Uh, in fact, the reason they're landing there is they ran out of food right. And they, yeah. the natives, not liking what the humans have been doing so far, uh, bring on not just Martian go-birds, but also uh, a wub. And they sell it for 25 cents. And then the con- the consequence of eating wub, right, which is a kind of cannibalism there, right? It's very, I think it's very deeply connected. This is a- about as far away from science fiction as you can get in terms of uh, actual rocket ships and technology, but not in terms of the ideas that are being explored, I think. Well, one thing I... I, Go ahead. Go ahead, Paul. No, I was was going to mention mention a book. Um, Have either you read The Bones of Time? No, I haven't. Um, Kathleen Ann Goonan, uh, it's, it's a novel about time travel, the bones of King Kamehameha, and... And Polynesian uh, and and Polynesian astrography, as far as trying to solve the secrets of time travel and space travel. So it's so she was definitely mining this, this, these whole ideas and this whole idea and the the whole Polynesian migration as metaphor for exploring uh, vastnesses of time and space. Hmm. King Kamehameha does get a shout out in here. Hmm. Uh, history of Hawaii is is pretty um, grim. And, uh, yeah, I, I have I I am eventually going to go visit Hawaii, and I kind of want to and fear dreading going like to the museum and really really learning the history in in my face detail and really seeing what really went on there. But I need I think I need to because you know you 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 grow up. I mean I had this. Viewmaster slide thing of hmm. Hawaii. Oh, Hawaii is this to- nice tourist place. And there was, of course, the the uh, the Brady Bunch episode. It's like <laughs> Brady Bunch. Uh, yes, with Hawaii. yes, with with, 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 with with yeah, with the cursed idol. And that was my conception of Hawaii growing up. And yeah, as time is going on, those scales are kind of falling from my eyes. And I think a trip there would probably yeah really reinforce you know, what we did to the Hawaiian Hawaiians. I, I just saw, I'm trying to find the name of that Sheckley story. I just saw one from 1954 called Uncle Tom's Planet. That really gives oh. you gives, gives you a sense of wow. what's going on, right, in, in, in 1950s. 
people are dealing like that's the one thing we know about uh, science fiction writers is they were science fiction readers at one time, or at least just readers at one time, and so they're, they're always thinking about what they are read and what what was going on inside there. Um, so I, I think there's another one. Uh, there's similar. Uh, it struck me for a long time like, uh, well, that's a funny title. Um, the t- uh, uh, no, it's a dick story called um, James P. Crow. Right. Yeah. Which is Jim Crow. It's like, oh, yeah, of course. Right. So they're dealing they're really dealing with this, the past in their own stories. Um, so, uh, yeah, we should do some more Sheckley. He's got some he's got some really. Uh, it's been a while since I did a novel of his, but he, he he's uh, you guys read a lot of Sheckley because he's he's as close to. I haven't read any of his stuff, really. Okay, I think he's really as close to Philip K. Dick as you can find, and Philip K. Dick's a pretty weird guy, you know, like in terms of what he writes about, and the, his sense of humor, and his sort of he's not hard SF, he's not pulp SF, he's not um he doesn't really care about how how many stages the rocket has, right, or um. Uh, you know, he's not dealing with the military. He doesn't, right? And that's the same with Sheckley. He's just just a just a guy who likes writing and likes ideas and likes playing with ideas. And you know, he's not obsessed with boobs as uh, Dick is, but he's he's got he's got his own little ideas, and uh, often they are about yeah the sociology of what's going on in a in a culture. Um, and, and, and like Philip K. Dick, he's done a collaboration with Roger Zelazny. Hmm. Bring me the head of Prince Charming. That's a fun book. I haven't read that one. He, he had a long writing career, and also he wrote a ton of short stories. Just a ton. And mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, some of them are, uh, a lot of them are probably um, copyright renewed. But um, I, I could get into it again. It's been a long time since I went looking for his his stuff. There's a... There's another title, Human Man's Burden. <laughs> the Native Problem. Maybe that's the name of. Uh, yeah, that might be. That was an X minus one episode too. Yeah, it's very, uh, very profitable to look at these old books. They really. Yeah, yeah. Typing has brought us into, has taken us to very distant seas of, uh, mm. of talking today. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about one of my favorite passages Please. of this book, Taipei. Go for um, it. Because, I don't know, especially with climate change, and there's like this anxiety about consumption. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, we're kind of venturing, I don't know if it'll be in our lifetimes or nearly after this kind of post-scarcity, this kind of specter of post-scarcity and what it's going to mean for work. And, you know, I come from a society where I'm living in society, at the, you know, in China, Taiwan was the same where not having a job is like a kind of a humiliating state, especially for a man. Right. And I don't think we're kind of intellectually or morally prepared for like a world without work or kind of a post work environment. Um, so one thing I really like about this book is it, it does kind of force us to think, you know, about that question. What would we do if we didn't have to work? Right. And part of that means we have to make peace with consumption because that's what a post-scarcity world means, right? Mm-hmm. There's plenty for us to consume. Um, but there's still like a lot of moralism about that. I know probably Americans consume too much, but 
at the same time, there's anxiety about that, especially now with climate change. You can just, you know, if you read leftist stuff, even just on Facebook, you know, there's people saying we got to like have fewer people and we have to consume less and, you know, abolish the suburbs and move everyone to the cities and all this kind of nonsense. Um, so this passage is it's in chapter 31, it's towards the end of the book, and he's talking about the girls again. He, he writes, this Melville writes this, the Taipei girls devote much of their time to the dressing of their fair and redundant locks. After bathing, as they sometimes do five or six times every mm-hmm. day, their hair is carefully dried as if they have been in the sea, invariably washed in fresh water and anointed with a highly scented oil extracted from the meat of the coconut. This oil is obtained in great abundance by the following simple process. And then for the rest of the chapter, he describes this, you know, how to get coconut kind of oil. industrial process of how they make this essentially hair gel right from the coconut. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's what these girls are doing with their time. Yep. They're water, they're bathing five times a day first. Right. Yep. And there's no morality with it. It's just, it's, it's, kind of the, the wages of living in this kind of world where, where work is not necessary. So they're not, it's not that they're not doing anything, but it's not that they're not necessarily doing anything that we would call productive, right? It's not even like as, it's not like a podcast even, right? Or writing a book <laughs> or, or writing music. It's let's make our hair look nice. <laughs> and I, I find this very beautiful and, and, and kind of optimistic. Yeah. I, I, as a, as an answer to the question, what will we do when we don't have work? You know, what's what's wrong with watching baseball or, you know, going to the playground with our kids? Well, doesn't or, it fit in with the Puritan work? Perfecting our hair. It, it, you know, it doesn't, but that's what I think we have to crush. I think yes. it's one of the big problems. And the, it's like even the Green New Deal stuff, right? At the heart of that is, you know, people need a job. Right. We'll give you a job, a federal job guarantee. Right. Some people on the left say, well, that's what well, really people need. do need is a federal job. People guarantee. do need meaningful work. Right. And even if that is like so, I, I usually bemoan the fact when I'm walking the streets around here, um, there's a lot of nail salons, a lot of skin salons, a lot of dental, you know, whitening places, pet stores. Jesus Christ. So <laughs> pet stores, pet waxing and. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe not pet waxing. Also, it's a pet stuff, right? Um, and there's no bookstores. I'm so mad, right? Well, okay. But uh, maybe that's not so bad. You know, people do like pets. I like I like a little puppy time now and again, but... Um, I've seen your pictures. You know? Yeah, I mean, well, then I'm not the one buying the puppies. I'm not the one... No, but you're, you're yeah. spending time. Yeah, you're, you're, I, I like a little puppy time, but um, it, it, you know... I think some people like will want to take. I, I know if you ask kids what they want to do, there's usually something they want to do. Whether they can think of that as a career later on is maybe less important. But maybe it's not so bad to spend all your time bathing. Or or some of the girls on the island, but they they just don't go outside into the sunlight because they're trying to make their skin so fair, right? And I was thinking, well, maybe that white guy, that <laughs> the head of that white guy was just one of those, maybe it was just a local dude who wanted to look the same. <laughs> he wanted to be really fair. <laughs> he was not like a, a foreigner, but who knows? Who knows? I found the name of the story um, uh, that I was thinking of. It's called The Victim from Space. And it's in, uh, let's see, it's in the April um, 1957 issue of Galaxy. I'm going to read you the opening paragraph and then the closing paragraph. 
Hadwell stared at the planet below. A tremor of excitement ran through him, for it was a beautiful world of green plains and red mountains and restless blue-gray seas. His ship's instruments quickly gathered the information and decided that the planet was eminently suited for human life. Hadwell punched a deceleration orbit and opened his notebook. So he goes down to the planet, and then I'm going to scroll to the end. It has the funniest... I already told you the premise, right? Which is everybody there has a secret desire to uh, be dead. Uh, I'll just read the closing section here. Hours later, Hadwell said, Darling, I'm taking you to Earth, the planet where I come from. You'll like it there. I know I will, Mealy murmured, staring out the porthole at the brilliant stars. Somewhere among them was her lost, her world, lost to her forever. She was homesick already, but there had been no other choice. A woman who loves truly and well never loses faith in her man. She fingered a tiny sheathed dagger concealed in her clothing. The dagger was tipped with a peculiar, peculiarly painful and slow-acting poison. It was a family heirloom mm-hmm. to be used when there was no priest around, and only on those once loved most dearly. I'm through wasting my time, Hadwell said. With your help, I'm going to do great things. You'll be proud of me, honey. Mealy knew he meant it. Someday, she thought, Hadwell would atone for the sin against her father, saving his life. (laughs) He would do something, some fine deed, perhaps today, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps next year, and then she would give him the most precious thing a woman can give a man, a painful death. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> it's um, it's uh, when this first contact story goes wrong, you 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 don't understand the the ethos you've stepped into, right? Um, yeah. What did what what did um, Heinlein call uh? Yeah, he called the uh, human human meat long pig. Okay. Long pig. Long pig. Long pig. The the first time I ever came across that phrase was in a. Bugs Bunny cartoon was it Bugs Bunny cartoon? It, it, it was some some Warner Brothers cartoon, and it, and the 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 volcano it was in Polynesia, and and the the volcano god tells the natives that they want a uh, long pig, and the uh, the priestess says long pig a sailor, <laughs> yeah, and that's the first time I had ever heard of cannibalism at all was in this this cartoon. I'm not sure it was Bugs Bunny or somebody. Or some other Warner Brothers character is going to wind up becoming a a, ca- a cannibal feast that they get away, of course. But I I only remember that that this is the, this animated volcano saying "long big." <laughs> you know, uh, I just did a podcast um, with Eric on a Philip K. Dick story called um, uh, "Strange Eden." I think I might have mentioned that to you, Evan, on Twitter. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. "Strange Eden." Uh, is a uh, kind of a retelling of the Cersei story. Cersei's never called out in the story, but she's definitely uh, her brother's name is Aetes, and Aetes has a sister named Cersei, and she transforms the men into animals, right? Um, and it, it yeah. never struck me before until we're thinking about this story. But um, when Cersei tra- transforms Odysseus's men into pigs. Um, it's never clear why she does that other than, you know, she does it and he has them transform back. But I always thought, and I think the point of that story, the strange Eden is there was other animals mentioned as being around Cersei's house on the Island or her cave or her abode and including lions and, uh, or at least long, uh, big cats and, uh, 
and wolves, right? And they're all tamed. Um, and she, she in the uh, in Strange Eden, um, she serves Brent, or yeah, his name is Brent, um, meat as well as you know bread. And uh, maybe Cersei was turning them into pigs so she could eat them, right? Because mm, which is cannibalism, yeah. yeah. Because you know, I, I didn't think it. You know, long. I've never eaten human, but apparently, it tastes like pork. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't. I, I've never thought of that, but yeah, that makes right? sense. Because uh, I always thought they were acting like pigs. They were just eating her out of house and home, and that's why they became pigs. What? What? Right. Um. The the novel Silverlock, which is you know the the John Myers Myers novel where character go, winds up meeting all these this all these literary characters and places. He winds up on Cersei's island. Mm. He gets transformed into a pig, and when his companion shows comes to try to rescue him, Cersei says, well, he was only interested in food and fornication, so I gave him, so now he has no distracting desires. Right, right. So, Brent is transformed in, in Strange Eden into a into a lion, or a, at least a big cat. And um, I was thinking, like, what if if you go back and read that section of the Odyssey and you, you speculate as to what, would happen to Odysseus had he not been warned by uh, Hermes or Mercury or whoever it was who warned him, um, you know, what to do and how to act. Um, would he have been transformed into a pig? I don't think so. I think he would have been turned into a wolf or a fox, right? I, I think fox, you know, Odysseus trickster. Exactly, right? So Guile here. And, and what I like about thinking about that story is that it doesn't tell you the answer. It doesn't say what's going on. You just have to make your own interpretation. And I think that's what Philip K. Dick is doing in in Strange Eden. And that's why the story didn't work for me for a long time is because he's basically working out his own ideas as to what's going on with these old stories. And and that's why it's such a weird story because it's it's basically a fantasy with a science fiction setting. And I, I think that that's why I was I was thinking we should do. Um, I guess we're pretty much done the podcast, but that's why I was thinking we should do um, the one with the green green lady. What's that one called? Strange. And it's not. It's in the Philip K. Dick story. Damn. Oh, the Piper in the Piper Woods. Piper in the Woods. That's right. So, because I think I have some insight into what might be going on, and when I read it again, I think I might get it better. That's. That's one that could yeah. never work <laughs> as a uh, Electric Dreams episode because I don't know what's going on in it. If, if and I'm a big Philip K. Dick fan, um, so they they don't seem to understand what's going on in any of this. Maybe maybe they could explain it to me. I don't know. I mean, maybe I don't understand what's going on there either. I'm just obsessed with work, so I, I just kind of assume it's about work. Yeah, it's definitely about work, and it it does fit into that. But also, I think you know, like he's doing something else because that's not. That's it's not only about turning green, right? It's not only maybe maybe it's a very Melville story. I'll have to look at it. I guess we'll look at it. You're up. Yeah, got, and you got kind of the indigenous person, right? Mm -hmm. You you see how they live, and and you just convert over, I right? Like there's something very appealing about this, mm -hmm. and I don't know. Part of me wants to say that these are still 
colonialists and they're they're looking at this with the, like that colonial gaze that's kind of one of those old academic terms academic key terms mm-hmm. for this like you because so the the assumption is it's always misinterpreted that goes back to Said and orientalism right mm. um mm-hmm. and i've kind of moved that that's how i was trained but you know my gut is no there's really something going on there it's the same with witches like mm. yeah on the whole i you know, most of the witch craze was a paranoia and there's, you know, religious paranoia and all that going on. But I'm so fascinated by the idea that, that there were women in these societies who maybe they're widows, maybe they were exploited or excluded from in some way. And they say, well, I'm going to worship the devil, right? I'm going to cast spells. And, and they go with other women, form covens, you know, and, you know, kind of revive these old Druidic traditions or something mm-hmm. and you know i i kind of like the idea that maybe there really were witches as a real movement as a real kind of way people resisted the world that they lived in i i was reading yesterday this this is a poem from uh weird tales uh it's called in thessaly by clark ashton smith when i lay dead in thessaly the land was rife with sorcery fair witches howl to hecate pouring the blood of rams by night with many a necromantic rite to draw me back for their delight. But I lay dead in Thessaly with all my lust and wizardry somewhere the golden ass went by to munch the rose and find again the shape and manly head of men. But in my grave I stirred not then. And then the black lote in Thessaly, its juices dripping and dripped unceasingly upon the rotting mouth of me. And worm and mold and grave, uh, graveyard must and roots and cypress darkly thrust transform the dead to utter dust. <laughs> it seems to be about a, a poem. It start, starts off as like he's a guy being bra- brought back to life. But actually turns out that he, he doesn't, right? Um, and uh, I just I like that reference to the golden ass, which is that ancient story, uh, the only novel from... Uh, Rome. Uh, somebody requested once we do a show on that. Um, you know that you guys know this story, the Golden Ass. Which the Golden Ass? Yeah, it's a it's the only Roman novel we have in full. Oh yeah, Appius. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's called the Golden Ass usually, and it's about a guy who wants to be transformed into a bird, but accidentally gets transformed into a donkey. <laughs> It, 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 yeah. So again, this happens in Silverlock because you know he's taking every story in the, in the uh, that's going in literature. So yeah, that happens. That happens to poor uh, our poor protagonist too at one point. Mm. So you know, it's uh, from the second century. So that's a that's a long it's, time ago, and it's got lots of inset tales, which I guess is like uh, what Shahrazad does, right? Or 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 or. or uh, or a Chaucer, yeah. Mm. It, that's that's a that's a that's a long tradition. Yeah, put the story within the story, mm-hmm. and if you get really really clever, put another put a story within a story within a story, then you get really people confused. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, Borges too. So many good things to yep. read. We're lucky to live in such times, in this post scarcity environment where all these five thousand PDFs plus are adding to the PDF. Page. But unfortunately, I have to go to work. You know. Oh, damn it. I gotta, I gotta somehow escape that. I need to. Well, when, once we get a guaranteed basic universal income or whatever, we'll all be fine. 
You think? We'll find I, I, out. No, I, I don't know if everything will be fine. I don't, I, I'm not like a utopian in that way. I just think... There will be new problems. I think we're too hung up on, on, on work. Like, I don't know, like, those rich people who go to work, go to the office every day, they just bore me. I don't think they have anything interesting to say right. to me. And... My, my my students really are resist this kind of thing. <laughs> well, my Chinese you, students. You're you're speaking to the wrong demographic, right? That they are, yeah. they are their whole culture is against that. So you're you're coming at it from the you're you're um you're a uh, I don't know a sailor in a land full of um, typees in a certain sense. Yeah, but I, I've come from a society that has the same thing, so. I'm, I'm I'm kind of going to the wrong place. Maybe I need to go to the Marquesas <laughs> or Europe. Maybe like, yeah. My coworker there, he used to live in Marseille, and he said like in Marseille, you know, mm-hmm. like the men are just sitting around drinking coffee all day and mm-hmm. having beer at noon and but wine, totally whatever. The same story there. I hear. Yeah. Yeah. And and if the government tries to cut their their dole, they come go to the streets. <laughs> <laughs> That's their work. <laughs> so. But, yeah, I think, I don't know how this could be achieved, but there has to be, you know, even the labor movement can't, could never do this. Because even though implicitly the labor movement is saying more leisure, more, you know, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will, there's an implication that we deserve leisure, Mm. but it's still like this kind of the pride of the working class or something. We create value through our labor but, uh, and that's that, kind of a moral thing there's that uh speech i think oh, I, I can't remember which politician it was um somebody was you know at one of those politicians trying to get elected for president uh maybe it was bush um mm-hmm. and uh the lady says i worked three jobs and and bush says <laughs> i think it's bush says three jobs he's like doesn't understand right and it's that's great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Only in America. Whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 no. See, she doesn't want to work three jobs to be able to afford to feed her family and pay mm-hmm. rent and all, you know, pay her bills. She has to. She's not she's not bragging. <laughs> she, she's complaining that she can't afford to uh, uh, have a look. You know, she's not getting a living wage at any of those jobs. And that that's the fundamental disconnect, right? Is that well, and even this word the words we use in to talk about things like industry or economy, like the the core meaning of those words is hard work and saving. Yep. Right? And I don't know which came first, but you know, I, I assume like the, the the more moral meaning came first. Mm. But yeah, we these have to be abolished, <laughs> you know. There really needs to be like a cultural revolution <laughs> to, to transform these concepts. <laughs> I like talking to you, Evan. You're hilarious. <laughs> are you in China right now or are you in Taiwan? Because <laughs> you're talking about Yeah, I'm, in China. I'm back in China. Okay. <laughs> That's well, super hilarious. Of course, I don't know. They're like, I guess the cultural revolution here, it's, I mean, they're, they're picking on like the Buddhist monks. I mean, they have the better, they have more of the right idea, I think. <laughs> I mean, you get communism, you get kind of post-scarcity communism. Of course, you're gonna have a bunch of people sitting around in temples praying all day, because that's what that's what floats their boat, right? They did that in the Middle Ages too. That, that's 
Yeah. Except the, the European monks were kind of hardworking people. They had the clock and the time discipline and all that. Get up to pray, vespers. And, Do all that copying. And, and, and making weird notes in the margins, like having knights fight snails. <laughs> You've seen those, they right? They invented the work ethic. There are, there are some historians who kind of, when they talk about like the clock, mm. they go back to the monks. I think even Mumford does this with, uh, what's his name? I forget his first name. Mumford, he did the, the machine stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the machine is kind of a whole social, the whole society is a machine. Kind of not just a, a technology, but a whole insti- like the whole ideology and structure of the society is the machine capital m mm. and he goes back to the the monks too they were, they were he blames it on them we're kind of first using the clock which brings us back to the missionaries and this and the book which as being yeah, I think which so. i think we're done with <laughs> yep i was trying i was trying to come up with the capper you in there got right. it This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. I don't even think it's sprained. It's very, very, very badly bruised and swollen. And and the black and blues are coming in quite... um, vividly ouch and i can't walk to save my life i'm hobbling hey, along i'm gonna have to leave you behind and go for the shore I, I i'll try and come back for you but if they eat you yeah i i unfortunately am the the weakest link yeah <laughs> no you come out of the narrative and write a famous book but then are forgotten for a hundred years they're forgotten for a hundred years <laughs> what a strange book this was i should save for the podcast save it though. for the podcast i'll save it for the podcast um uh, oh, Evan just came online. Joining. There we go. Are you joining our tribe in the Marquesas? <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see what he oh, says. Oh, no. All right. No. No? Is that, um, uh, am I uh, breaking some uh, taboo? You're breaking a taboo. Yeah. That's, uh, that's what... Uh, Taboo translates to and into, into English, it's uh, problematic. <laughs> Gr- growing, growing up, I always saw taboo with two O's, but as time went on, I saw it more spelled with a U instead of two O's. Uh, I wonder why that was. For fun. I see it a lot more often with T-A-B-U instead of T-B-O-O. Yeah, I've seen that a lot more often in the last decade than T-A-B-O-O. At least as far as regarding... Stuff outside the United States, you know, as is talking about uh, indigenous customs, I see it more spelled often with the U than the O-O these days. Oh, yeah. Not sure why that happened. Yeah, I think you see that in some original text. I'm going to pour some tea. I'll be right back. Or make some tea. Just take a second here. It sounds familiar, that spelling. I must have seen it in some, like, missionary texts from the time. That might be the more old-fashioned spelling. I don't know. T-A-B-U. It sounds more, I guess, intuitively, the the more intuitive spelling, maybe, right? Because they're just hearing the word in the other language. Right. 
And but, looking, look, look, looking, looking at uh, Wikipedia, the tomb taboo T B O O comes from the Tongan tapu T A P U or Fijian T A B U. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and the Maori have T A P U, the Hawaiian have K A P U. So I guess the U feels a little more in line with uh, Polynesian spellings and cust- and uh, original yeah. words than T B O O. But like, like, mm-hmm. like, for example, I remember reading this really, like, 1920s old history book, and it's spelled Hindu, H-I-N-D-O-O. Mm-hmm. So I, th- yeah, I think that. yeah, so I do think there has been a conscious shift in that uh in spelling. And Hindi well, should be spelled H I N D E O. Well, of course. The, the Chinese has all been kind of changed to the Romanization, but right, I, right, right, right. From Wade Giles' opinion, yeah. I remember, like when I was in college, it was like my my professor like didn't correct me when I spelled Muslim with an O and an E, and the Quran with the K, like the K, like the Quran could be K O R A N or Q U R A N. R A N, yeah. It's just a really. With these non, um, like, Western alphabets, non-Latin alphabets, it's you just kind of Romanize them however you want, I guess. Mm. There, there are many ways to, uh, rom- yeah, to write it. At some point, they standardize it. And uh, my replies to people by text message now, instead of saying yes or okay, I say yesp, Y-E-S-P. <laughs> I don't know why. It just it happened one time, and I liked it, so it's now my... It's now your thing. My operating system. 